Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back. Today, kind of a follow-up to my latest YouTube video on the Thinking Basketball YouTube channel, and that was about Devin Booker. And what happened as I was making the video about Devin Booker is I, I ventured into this very nuanced, sort of very murky and difficult space of young, talented scorers and offensive players who live on just bad teams. Just there, there isn't a lot of great talent around these guys. These are teams winning, you know, 20 or 30 games a year tops. And of course, the offenses aren't very good either. So it's not like you have these situations where guys are on formidable offenses. Maybe think the Wizards with Arenas and Karan Butler and Jameson or when Milwaukee had Sam Cassell and Ray Allen and Glenn Robinson. It's not it's not situations like that that are challenging because those situations, there's sort of a hierarchy where we can see, okay, like maybe Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum with the Celtics recently, you can see where those guys fit on higher quality teams. The challenging exercise is players like Booker who live on teams where sometimes the surrounding talent involves replacement level players, the structure isn't crystallized, and this is an incredible sort of task to figure out how they scale up. By the way, I have a chicken in the oven, and it's about a 50-minute cook, so we're going to try to get this done before that chicken is done. The key to the chicken this is uh, thinking cooking now. This is the cooking tip of the day. The key to the chicken, if you're oven roasting that, dry that out. You want a dry roasting environment and high heat. Dry it. I mean, really the best way to do it is with a blow dryer. Get a blow dryer on that bird. Get that thing completely bone desert dry. And I'm talking high heat, a nice 450 oven for your chicken. So we're going to try to get this done before that chicken's done. Okay. So I talk about this idea to a degree in thinking basketball with the foundational concept that every team has a leading score. But when you look at these subpar teams and these subpar offenses, and especially when they almost like feature a young player like this, they he has the ball a lot, they run offense through him, they're even in the case of Booker catering to some of his strengths or trying to develop certain strengths, and he just kind of has in a way, carte blanche. That's not the best phrase to use here because it, it could imply that he's doing whatever he wants on the court, and that's not what I'm saying. It's more that we know that in that system he can score 20 or 25 points a game on decent efficiency. Uh, even the passing game that he's developed as I was going over the film was, okay, he's working on these pick-and-roll reads, these particular pick-and-roll reads often from the top or with a player and you can you know you can develop those we're seeing the development of that over time but it raises bigger questions about what happens when that player ends up on a really good team so that's what i wanted to dive into today it to me it was worthy of an entire separate conversation and subtopic so that's what we will talk about so if you've been following along this summer I did mention that I was doing a guest video for Bleacher Report. Essentially, the Booker video you see is a version of that video. The The video, the Bleacher Report has a whole project associated with this that's been paused, and they said, go ahead and, and create uh, your own Booker version 
um, on your channel, that's what you see. But the original video goes deeper into this with Joe Johnson uh, and some other examples of players who are in situations when they're young where they could be a centerpiece as a scorer on a poor offense where you're going to have a little more ball dominance, a little more creation. All the numbers are going to be up and you have uh, weaker peripheral parts versus how they fit in to high-level offenses. So that was really the the meta thought for me as I kept going through Booker's film. From Twitter, Adam Polio, Marco Polio, he asked, uh, in, so in short, Booker is a flawed player who doesn't have enough of an off-ball game to be valuable, but he's also 22, so he could develop, but his first step isn't that good, so we'll wait and see, question mark. That's kind of what it is, I think, in terms of my takeaways and what I see. But I think the bigger, richer question here is something along the lines of what happens when you go from being the best player on your team offensively to the second best player on your team offensively or the third best player on your team offensively? And this isn't just a theoretical question. This isn't just stacking chips together. I mean, in this case, what happens you know, 80 or 90% of the time, those lead initiators and lead wing players are, and these offensive centerpieces are going to be better at the on-ball stuff than Devin Booker is. So we know from history that that usually means you're, it's not like you're going to play entirely off-ball and you're just not part of the offense, but traditionally you become a secondary creator or you take more of a lead when you're playing with the second unit or something like that. So what happens to your value in your game when you're spending more time off ball? What happens, and this is what really struck me about Booker that was interesting, what happens when you don't have a lot of time to set up your offense? So much of what he's doing, and the Phoenix coaches talk about how he's a sponge and how he ramps up his learning curve, and I can see that on film uh, he clearly continues to add stuff to his game, and per the per the tweet I just read, I think there's still more room for him to grow there. But what happens when he no longer has 13 seconds to deliberately get the screener in the right position or come back to the top and set himself up? Another subtle little thing is he likes runways. He doesn't have a super explosive first step, I think especially going left. Uh, he likes a little hesitation, so he uses the space. So he likes a runway. He likes to back up and come to 30, 35 feet and use that extra space. What happens when you can't do that as frequently? Because that kind of breaks the flow of offense sometimes. Or if you're transplanted somewhere else, you'll be in the flow of someone else's offense. You'll be in his sort of stream, if you will, and you have to sync up. And so you still have a skilled score. None of these guys that we're going to talk about today, as you'll see, uh, almost none at least, like fall off. There's still a skilled score. But to me, this really drills into the idea of not just scaling, but an old Dean Oliver concept that he used to call skill curves. And this was a related idea that says, as if you're a volume scorer on low efficiency, what we typically expect to see is something along the lines of, well, your volume goes down, so your opportunities should be easier. And if your opportunities are easier, your shot percentage should go up. And this is sort of viewed as this classical relationship between volume and efficiency when you size up a player's stats in his context. 
and you try to say, okay, is he, isn't he an extreme case? Is it Allen Iverson shouldering an enormous load of offense, taking difficult shots, and therefore he may be, you know, 30 points per 75, but he's at league average or below efficiency. If we were to put him in a better situation, like Denver in a couple of years, he goes to Denver in, I think, 2006 and has the highest efficiency season of his career. It's around then, 2006, 2007. Can't remember off the top of my head. But that's the concept. He plays with better players. His volume goes down because the shots should get easier. Well, skill curves is this idea that it's it's a different shape for different players. I think that was the original impetus behind that concept. It was a really long time ago. I can't be expected to remember what I had for breakfast yesterday, let alone uh, some concept from almost two decades ago. But I think this kind of thinking, how a player scales, what opportunities he has, how are we viewing these stats, applies here. So for me, the takeaway was, well, Booker's stats aren't that empty in the sense that he's a very skilled scorer and he has these elements to his game that are going to provide some value, uh, assuming he can fit in a secondary or tertiary role. But one, he's not going to be, at least not right now, the best player on a really good offense. And I think that's, again, I think that's a tricky concept for us to intuit, but this is the easiest way, I think, to see it. If you made him the centerpiece of an offense, what would you need around him for him to continue to be the centerpiece, for him to continue to be the driver, the engine, and the best player on that that offense, and that offense be, I don't know, at least three or four points better than league average? I mean, forget a really, really high-level offense, just a solid, good, regular season NBA offense. And when you start to size up what that would require, I think in his case, he would need probably an elite post player and or some combination of very skilled shooters and maybe maybe the perfect fit of skilled shooters post player slash rim runner some kind of gravity around the hoop and a secondary creator and that's a lot to ask and have none of those pieces at the same time be better than booker and have that whole thing come together to be like a top seven or top five nba offense So that's what I mean by it's very unlikely for him to be the best player on a good offense. And so if he's not that, then he goes into a role where a lot of those things that make him comfortable that I talked about earlier that I present in the film aren't there for him. His shot attempts aren't there. Things that actually make it easier for him to score go away. And so this is where we get back to skill curves because... The idea is, in in theory, I think some people think, and I've seen this espoused regularly in all circles of the internet for a long time, some people think if you decrease volume, you increase efficiency, and that's just a law. That's like a law of basketball thermodynamics. But that's not the case. And the reason it's not the case is because it really depends on the opportunities you're swapping in and out in these situations. When your volume goes up, Some guys can scale up their volume. I'm not talking about scaling here like adding value to better teams. I mean, some players ramp up that volume, but they maintain efficiency because of the angles and opportunities that they can create. Perhaps there's no better example of this than Michael Jordan, who 
not only in individual seasons could ramp up his efficiency once he got to about 1988 or so, but in the postseason regularly added a little bit of volume. And in both cases, as the volume went up, he really didn't have a loss in efficiency. There are other instances of players like this in NBA history. Sometimes they're less notable, but it really comes down to what what we're measuring here with scoring and efficiency is the opportunities the players have on the court. And so in Booker's case, I'm nervous that you swap out a bunch of those opportunities and now you rely on something more like a hybrid between off-ball scoring and a secondary creator. As I said, that's still not bad. That's still pretty good. I was a little more impressed with the totality of Devin Booker after diving into the film than just from casually watching a few Phoenix games this year. He has some skill as a shooter, of course, and a lot of people pointed to when he was younger at Kentucky. Is he an off-ball talent? Well, he has that shooting, but I don't think he's a great shooter. I'm not sure he'll ever be a great shooter. I don't know if the indicators are totally there for that, but let's say he's a good shooter. You can see he has some comfort coming off and catch and shoot situations maybe he's a decent spot up guy as well how how different are those numbers going to look and what kind of value do you think he's going to have on a good team if he's occasionally coming off screens and he's in spot up situations and he has some secondary creation initiator in him in certain situations to me you're going to i mean that's the question to me and that's where i'm trying to gauge and hone in on my evaluation of where the player is and where he's going. Now, the other component, and which I'll get into more in the future, but it's under-discussed to me, is movement. His movement without the ball, that low motor is an issue here because there are a handful of players in the league, let's take J.J. Redick, who essentially can create everything they're doing based on movement. J.J. Redick's a great shooter, but you don't think of J.J. Redick as a spot-up shooter. He actually creates gravity, creates opportunities, stresses the defense, gets himself not only three-pointers but two-pointers, little leaners, floaters, runners, back cuts, everything, just basically with perpetual movement. Booker's movement patterns to me, I don't mean biomechanically, I mean his habits in the half court, are not overly inspiring. And so that's the whole package I'm looking at on offense to say nothing of his defense, which maybe has a little bit of potential to be better. Like the the metrics view him as the worst defender in the league, basically. His defensive numbers are comical. And I think that's overstated, but of course, uh, there's also concern with you know how passable he can be as a defender. So that's Booker. The other guy in the league right now who is kind of in that situation to me is Zach Levine. And a lot of you brought it up on Twitter. Levine is an interesting juxtaposition at least at a high level here because let me let me I'll say nothing of his defense let me say that just because I don't have a great feel for his defense I think physically he has a uh, the shell to at least be a passable defender but I haven't studied enough of his defense to really have any kind of informed opinion about habits or things like that I don't watch a huge amount of Chicago Bulls tape but when I when I am watching the Bulls and I do see some of their stuff Levine really pops as an athlete, his ability to put some pressure on the rim, and he's got a big-time jumper. He uses that athleticism to actually get that jumper off in all kinds of situations. Is it super accurate right now? No, not really. But 
the totality of his offensive presence, his athleticism, his ability to drive, you already have a player who his scoring numbers are not far behind Devin Booker. I didn't even realize that until I went and looked them up. Sometimes you you know forget to internalize things as the season goes on. You're like, wow, Zach Levine's like a 25 you know per 75 positive efficiency scorer. Now that's that's pretty good. And the thing that's interesting comparing Levine and Booker is Levine with his speed and his cuts and his his athleticism. I think he gets into stuff a lot quicker. I think when he catches the ball, he goes right into his action much more comfortably than a lot of what you're seeing Booker build up. And so the transition for Levine to be a secondary or tertiary attacker in someone else's offense, that kind of, again, this is why I had Joe Johnson, uh, an entire thing about Joe Johnson in the original Booker concept piece for Bleacher, uh, he went the other direction. He first played on the high-level offense with Steve Nash and then went and got his own, own offense with Atlanta where he had the ball more and he became ISO Joe. He wasn't ISO Joe before that. He wasn't ISO Joe in Boston before he was hastily traded as a rookie, and he wasn't ISO Joe in Phoenix, and he was largely a spot-up shooter in Phoenix, but also these kind of quick, dynamic actions. He was big. He can shoot over people. Uh, if Nash finds you, a little up fake, go to the hoop, or up fake, and you know I can catch and hit a 15-footer, which was more in vogue then. So these are the differences that I think sort of outline this larger meta conversation, which is really interesting to me, hopefully to you too, because now I've been rambling on about this for 15 minutes and we haven't even gotten to the to the entree here. But the this idea of how we evaluate, what does it mean to be a 25 point per game scorer on some team where you literally have replacement parts around you, And how do we look at the different components of your game and really break them down in a granular way to inform us with some degree of accuracy, effort aside, or whether you buy in, just assuming you buy in and you go to a better team, what that actually looks like. So one thing I did to answer this is I looked at players in NBA history who were 25 or younger wanted to be a little loose with the age restrictions because, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, uh, more players were rookies at 21, 22, and so on and so forth. So 25 or younger, at least 18 points per 75. You played on a poor team, uh, a team that had a point differential of minus four or worse, and you played regularly, so at least 30 minutes per game. That produced 216 players in NBA history, just all of history. From there, I built a really basic model, just really simple kind of regression model, to predict what their peak would be. So this is nothing fancy. I still haven't really... I've dipped my toe in the pool in terms of looking at young players, this podcast included, but I haven't really jumped in in terms of like full board projections yet. So this, this isn't fancy. It doesn't involve multiple years or college or other complex nuanced factors like this. It was just basically saying, if we look at these guys and we look at sort of their classic box score footprint here and what they were at their best, 
uh, is there some correlation between where they were in these situations and where they ended up being? It's not meant to be a perfect predictor at all. But it turns out that, yeah, you can actually get just a decent ballpark prediction just by building a simple model that says, look at some of their basic box score stuff and specifically look at their age, look at how old they are, look at their box plus minus, this is using my particular model, so look at their overall value, their box plus minus at that age, look at their scoring value, that score val concept, we talked about this on the last podcast with the playmaker value and the original one is scoring value, so look at where they are as a score, look at their overall value, and then look at how often they get to the free throw line. That was the other big predictor. Just use those four variables. That's it. Nothing fancy. And you can kind of get a lot of players within like, you know, plus or minus a point of their peak BPM. And the reason, just to reiterate, the reason I'm looking at it from that perspective is because we know the overall numbers are going to change. We know the scoring might go down and the efficiency might go up and you might create more or less or whatever it may be. But what we're interested in is that overall value. So if Booker or Zach Levine go to a good team tomorrow, we want to know, are you still going to play 35 minutes a game? We want to know what your overall value is going to be related to that playing time. What we don't care about is whether you average 27 and 6 or whether you average 18 and 3. Whether you know, Can you ramp up some defense because you no longer have to carry such a large load on offense? So we care about the overall impact of these guys as they're put in better situations. And the two huge moving parts are scaling to a different team, so your teammates, and your age. What happens as you get a little bit older? Is it reliable to look at what's happening when someone's 21, 22, 23 as a way to inform their peak when they're on these poor teams? And the answer seems to be yes. Uh, again, this isn't even fancy, and it does a pretty decent job of getting us within, you know, a point, point and a half. The average error for the 216 players was a point. A lot of guys, it nails. So that's that's kind of interesting. Now, because I didn't do anything too robust from a modeling or statistical perspective, what I wanted to do next and finish out this episode, kind of make this the the entree here, if you will, is look at the different players, the actual specific players who qualify for this criteria in this situation, especially a lot of recent ones, and kind of look at them and see what happens when guys in those spots changed from really poor team to good offense. Not only what happened to their numbers, but what happened to their overall impact. And as we do that, I think you'll see this idea that I alluded to earlier. The volume efficiency skill curve is different depending on the player. And so much of that to me depends on the actual way the player scores, the actual skill set of the player. And that's an idea that again, applies to everybody from Michael Jordan down to, you know, Tyson Chandler. You know, if you take away a great lob threat from Tyson Chandler, if he doesn't play with Chris Paul or Steve Nash or whatever, we would assume that the volume goes down, but his efficiency isn't going to keep going up. He's just not getting spoon fed his regular 
opportunities around the basket maybe. So it applies to everyone. But you'll see it here as we go through some of the guys. Let's let's start and go through some of the guys. Tyreek Evans. Tyreek Evans uh, averaged 20 per 75 as a rookie, right around league average efficiency, a big score, kind of a big numbers rookie season. He also, his box creation was seven shots created per 100. He had a solid passer rating. You know, he was running point, leading the whole thing in Sacramento. And that was a terrible offense. That Sacramento team was not good. Now, the best offense he ever plays on is a couple years later in New Orleans in 2015. But in his case, he kind of has a similar role, uh, similar load, similar responsibilities. Everything is similar. But again, what's most notable here, and the reason why I even wanted to uh, bring up Tyreek, is his scoring efficiency doesn't go up. His scoring rate goes down a little bit, but the efficiency doesn't go up. If he's at 20, he goes down to 18 or 19. The efficiency does not go up in his case. And that gets back to the larger concept. You know, if if you play with more skilled teammates, if you start playing with Anthony Davis and other players like this, how well can you finish off the opportunities they create for you? If that doesn't exist, then... We shouldn't expect your efficiency to just magically go up. Here's a name, a guy who was in my head uh, all the way back to the beginning of when I was making the Booker video, Sharif Abdurrahim. Sharif Abdurrahim had in, in Vancouver, that's right, back in Vancouver, not just Memphis, Vancouver, and even Atlanta, he had some monster scoring seasons, monster raw numbers. In 1998, in Vancouver on an absolutely dreadful team. I, I don't remember the exact total. This is like a 20-win team we're talking about here. He averaged uh, 24 per 75 on plus 4% efficiency. So those are those are huge scoring numbers. You know, if we're sitting here sizing up all-time players, that's the kind of stat line you might hear from someone. He did that at 21 years old. And so... That gives people a lot of optimism. They think he should be an all-star. Uh, you get to see some of his isolation skills showcased, his post skills, and he did. He had a little bit of it. Absolutely had a turn and face. He liked to catch, turn and face, uh, little hook stuff, feels around the basket, decent athlete, slender, 6'9", 6'10", type of guy. Okay. At 27, he's finally moved to a decent team. And he made an all-star team, by the way, in 2002. So not in the too far past was he an all-star. In 2004, at 27, he's traded mid-season to Portland. Even more interesting than it's mid-season. And he goes from, in Atlanta, he's 22 points per 75, plus 5% relative efficiency. That's that true shooting. His overall points per attempt is 5 percentage points better than league average. This is really good. Again, 22 plus 5. This is the kind of stuff we talk about all-star, all-NBA, high-level players. And when he gets to Portland, he comes off the bench. Now, first of all, he comes off the bench because Portland said, well, we have Zach Randolph, and things seem to work with him. We don't want to disrupt this situation. But also, even young Zach Randolph with that 
bully game, those little hook shots, that lefty hook stuff around the basket, his little turn and face game. He may kind of be a better scorer than you. And you're saying, what? Like, Sharif is 22 plus 5, he's 24 plus 4, he's made an all-star team. Well, what about the other big man spot? The other big man spot is occupied by Theo Ratliff for defense. So here's where defense comes into the equation when you translate to a better team. Because you don't want to give both of those spots, Sharif and, and Zach Randolph, uh, to those guys when they can't play defense. So Ratliff is in there for defense. So now he moves behind Zach Randolph, comes off the bench. By the way, was not happy with this. It's it's you know it's not the Twitter age. It's it's before Twitter. It's before social media. So we don't have every detailed insider behind the scenes emotive response. But there were reports he wasn't happy. I believe he went on record and said it at certain times. You know, played played out that season coming off the bench. By the way, played 85 games that season because of the trade. That's a fun little quirk. And what were his numbers? 22 plus 5 in Atlanta. Gets traded. Rest of the season, 18 points per 75. And here's the kicker. Plus 1% efficiency. Now, some of that might be noise, right? It's only 34 games. It's not an enormous sample for efficiency. But it's, it's decent. It's 34 games. And you see a drop in volume, and instead of the efficiency going up, it goes down. Because, I mean, he could the shots are going to be different. I don't have the hundreds of shots in front of me to break them all down. But conceptually, the reason why this could be happening is if you can't get to your comfort spots anymore, if you're not the centerpiece of that offense you're asked to fit in, you actually lose situations, you lose scoring opportunities that are really advantageous for yourself because they require time and a particular setup versus being fluid and dynamic and fitting in with the team system. Jim Jackson. Jim Jackson was on those Dallas teams with Jason Kidd and all that Tony Braxton stuff. And in 1996, big scoring season for Jim Jackson, 22 per 75 Right around league average efficiency, at the age of 25, that was a minus five uh, margin of victory team. And the offense was just below average. And the year before, he was even a higher scorer. He was, he was 25 per 75, right around the same efficiency. And he, But he played a huge role in this team. Played a huge role in this team. His offensive load was 42, which means he was directly involved in scoring some way on 42% of the offensive possessions that he was on the floor. Then, if we fast forward two years, finally to when he gets to a better team in 1998, he gets moved to Philadelphia. And in Philadelphia, his load goes from 42 to 30. That's an enormous drop-off. That means you not only have opportunities to score but you have opportunities to pass you're just you have the basketball more you're doing more stuff that is central to the offense and in Philadelphia you go down to a load of 30 this is more like your secondary creator kind of guy over the scoring numbers there 15 points per 75 efficiency of plus two so just about the same efficiency maybe a very minor bump and an enormous drop-off in volume. Again, you can't 
so t- the two things that are central to this exercise and to this episode, you can't assume that because he goes to this spot that he's going to be like, oh, instead of 23 per game, it's going to be 20 per game and his efficiency is going to be way better. In his case, it was an enormous drop-off in volume, and the efficiency stayed about the same. In 1999, Jim Jackson went to Portland. That was legitimately a good team. The 98 Philadelphia team wasn't even a very good team. He just had to play next to Iverson. In 99 in Portland, he played on a good team, and there were some injuries involved. So take it with a grain of salt, but his numbers were 14 per 75, minus 1% true shooting. Isaiah Ryder, uh, I actually use him as a use case in thinking basketball. But if we look at Isaiah Ryder, specifically when earlier in his career, when he was in Minnesota, he had these huge numbers on dreadful offenses. I mean, he was winning the dunk contest, just beasting people in the post. He had a wonderful sort of power mid-post game. He'd back you down, fade away. Man, I, I, love, me, I love me some J.R. Ryder when he was younger. Anyway, enough reminiscing. So he was kind of around a 23.1% efficiency guy. And then he goes to Portland in 1997, an above average Portland offense. At that point in time, just coming off all these Minnesota seasons, he drops to 19 points per 75 on about the same efficiency. So again, the volume is going down. The efficiency is not going up in kind. And the overall offensive load goes down. So he has fewer opportunities, and with those fewer opportunities, scoring less, but the efficiency is right around the same. Joe Johnson, I mentioned Joe Johnson many times in this podcast. Just to look at his numbers, Joe Johnson went in the other direction, which is why I thought he was such a a fun use case. Joe Johnson was a skilled young player who played on this monster kind of 60-win all-time level offense team in 2005 in Phoenix with Steve Nash. And his numbers that year were 16 points per 75, plus 3% on a load of 28. Two years later, when he's in Atlanta, a little bit older, coming into his own, he is 24 points per 75, plus 2%. So his volume goes up, but his efficiency doesn't go way down. His offensive load is night and day. It's 42 in Atlanta in 2007. Atlanta, by the way, that year is a terrible team. They're a minus five point differential team. They have a far below average offense, minus three relative to league average in offensive rating. And so you can see here the directionality is different, but it's the same story over again, which is that if we were to look at ISO Joe in Atlanta and see these numbers, big scoring numbers, right around league average efficiency with a broader, larger on-ball role, a, a larger responsibility centering this not-so-good offense, when you move him to a good offense and ask him to be a component on that offense, you know, to say nothing of Amari Stoudemire, for instance, in Phoenix, but you ask him to be the second, the third, the fourth guy. Yes, he's a little bit younger, so it's not a true one-to-one here. There's still some growth. But 
what you don't get is you don't go from 24 to plus 2, excuse me, you don't go from 24 plus 2 to, say, 20 plus 6. He was 16 plus 3 in Phoenix. It's the skill set that matters. It's the way you score that matters. It's the fit that matters. And as hopefully is abundantly clear with all of these use cases, none of these players, despite their wonderful numbers uh, and some of them even earning all-star game accolades on these poor offenses, none of them were good enough to go to higher level teams and maintain a large role, which is that nuanced emphasis that just kept coming into my mind as I was watching Booker. Okay, you put him on a better team. He's not going to be able to play the same way because he's not going to be the centerpiece of a good offense. Now he's still 22. It feels like he's been 22 forever. So there's still growth, and there's still room to grow. So it's not impossible that he'll be the best player on a decent NBA offense, especially if he stays in Phoenix, and they can build the ship around him. I think there's some optimism there. But what I'm really thinking of is 55-win teams. Even even 38-44-win to 44 win teams can be a totally different ball game, especially with this kind of player. And by this kind of player, I mean someone who doesn't excel in particular areas that translate. So isolation game, all these guys we just talked about, guess what? We don't want to build an entire high-level NBA offense around your isolation. So we can't run through your isolation game every possession. Pick and roll game, your pick and roll game can develop, but we're not going to build our offense around your pick and roll game. Your passing and playmaking can develop, but they're not skilled enough to drive a championship-type NBA offense. A couple more, and then we will get out of here. Uh, Dennis Schroeder, multiple 20-point seasons in Atlanta as the lead guy of that offense. I mean, even his box creation was over 10 shots created per 100. He's a decent passer. It's kind of a, you know, for a point guard, a lead guy, kind of around average can throw throw it around a little bit and regularly you know his his efficiency was regularly below at league average then he goes to Oklahoma City he obviously has less of a ball dominant role there playing with Russell Westbrook then gets to lead the second unit at times which I thought that's an okay idea contract aside and he ends up with I mean here we go same pattern 19 points per 75, minus 5 efficiency, and his load drops off significantly, and the shot creation is basically halved. I can't get over that minus 5 efficiency. I mean, obviously, some of these things can be noise. Your shooting accuracy and your game, it's not perfect from year to year. But again, examples of these uh, these theoretical instances where you're changing the way you play because you move to a team with guys who already have those skills. 1999 Detroit Pistons. Jerry Stackhouse arrives. And it's Grand Hill's team. And boy was this was prime Grand Hill. This was right before the injury. And they were a good team in 1999. They they could defend and and Hill led a strong offense. In 2001, Grand Hill left, and Stackhouse goes from maybe a 20-point-per-75 guy, just a little bit below 
league average efficiency to 28 per 75, again, around league average efficiency. And his playmaking goes up. So his entire load, he becomes the center piece of the offense. So that's a monstrous jump in volume. He expands his playmaking duties. He's the centerpiece. He can create more offense. He has the basketball more. More is going through him. And right out of the gate, we don't see the efficiency drop off a cliff. It's around the same. I think it might even have been slightly better in 2001 in his high-scoring season. But what happens to Detroit? Detroit's terrible. Detroit's offense is absolutely terrible. And, and he had poor offensive talent around him. Don't get me wrong. They did not have much offensive talent left on that team. But that's exactly what we're looking at. We're looking at players who have these skills, who are put in these situations, who then put up these huge numbers. And how do they translate when you replace that poor talent with better talent? Now, what I find really interesting about this case and why I wanted to finish on it. Joe Smith is one of those players in 2001 who's a teammate of Jerry Stackhouse in Detroit. Joe Smith is still only 25 at this point in time. When Joe Smith was 22, he was another one of these guys that qualified for this filter. He was 20 points per 75, minus 5% efficiency in 1998 in Golden State as a 22-year-old. Of course, Joe Smith was the number one pick in the draft, a highly heralded player, and Skilled player on both ends. I don't think he ended up being very good in terms of these NBA standards on both ends, but certainly had enough to warrant being the number one pick. And I think it's forgotten that when he was in Golden State in that really dreadful situation, he had pretty big scoring numbers. So when he gets to Detroit, those numbers go down from 20 points per 75 to 17 points per 75, Again, the efficiency stays the same. And that's a better offense. Then he gets to Minnesota, and he, he keeps it's 16 points per 75. Now the efficiency creeps up a little bit. Creeps up a little bit. So you have multiple guys who hit this filter playing on the same team, and yet you still see the same pattern that we're kind of you know, making the theme of the entire episode. Jerry Stackhouse, by the way, went to... Washington in 2003, and his numbers went back down, back down to 22 points per 75. Efficiency, again, right around league average. Playing next to uh, old Michael Jordan. I think it was Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan's ghost, somebody that looked like Michael Jordan. I want to leave with Stackhouse because he finally gets to a high-level team, like a really good team, in 2005 the Mavericks. That's when Steve Nash leaves. Dallas brings in more defensive talent. It was a trade-off because you already have Dirk Nowitzki. Things were in good shape there. And he comes in, different, slightly different role, not going to be able to be the centerpiece. His creation comes down. His scoring comes down. He is uh, 20 points per 75 league average efficiency. By the way, throughout all of this with Stackhouse, my BPM model does not like him too much. It liked him the most in that Detroit situation where it thinks, hey, you're kind of an above average player. You're decent. 
And then in some of the Washington and Dallas situations, is maybe you're closer to an average player. Not sure. By the way, of course, in case uh, you've forgotten going down this rabbit hole, of those 216 players, not all of them turned out like these guys we looked at today. Some of them, some of them were great. Some of them scale well and went on to play on. I mean, Kevin Durant as a rookie hit this filter, right? He obviously went on to grow and develop and have an offense built around him. So a lot of young players will hit this filter and will grow and develop into superstars. Just perusing over the list of the 216 players who fit the original criteria, they were 25 or younger, they had a season with 18 points per 75, they played on a team with a minus four-point differential or worse, and they played at least 30 minutes a game. Guys that uh, turned out to be kind of decent, I think, going to better situations. Eric Gordon is one that jumps up. Brooke Lopez was on this list. Kevin Martin, maybe. I mean, but there are some ugly names here as well. Marcus Thornton, Maurice Taylor, Michael Beasley's on here, Ricky Davis, O.J. Mayo, Ron Mercer, Tobias Harris. There's one who possibly is in a situation to excel in kind of a tertiary role where his original game as he's developed it over the last few years has supported that anyway that's his his strengths look like they plug in that way the best players on this list uh, in no particular order players like Chris Mullen Kyrie Irving Baron Davis DeMarcus Cousins blips this list Elton Brand when he was younger Patrick Ewing, although I think in Patrick Ewing's case, there's a lot of defense in play there. Gilbert Arenas, Alvin Robertson, Pau Gasol, 2002 Memphis, Kevin Love, 2011 Minnesota, Tracy McGrady, Chris Weber, Grant Hill himself in 1995. Again, look at the shell and the way he played in 1995, and that is what developed into a centerpiece because the, the pieces and the foundation for that were already there. Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant, also in their rookie seasons, qualified for this list. Last question, what does the model say about Booker? That little gimmick model I built looking at age and and free throw rate and things like that? Well, Booker's current status drops him, his, his current box plus minus, according to this model, leaves him in the largest band of uncertainty of any players. So I thought that was interesting because the model itself, looking at players who are similar, said, eh, actually, your error rates are going to be higher. It's a little harder for me to say with certainty how these types of players will project at their peak, 25, 27, 29, whatever it is. So what does the model say about Booker? Says he's going to be pretty good. Says he's going to be close to right around it has his projected peak box plus minus in my model at plus 3.5 but that's not great that's not what we think of as a perennial all-star for perspective the other players right in that range per the same model mo williams glenn rice adrian dantley go back to the 80s Derek anderson jamal mashburn boy a run of kentucky players and joe johnson himself right around there So there you have it. Hope that was interesting. This was a theoretical exercise for me. 
and I'm certainly interested to hear your thoughts and feedback on it as always. Thanks, by the way, to all of you new Patreon subscribers over on patreon.com slash thinking basketball to help support the podcast, the channel, everything else I do. Patreon articles available, we're trying to put those out regularly for Patreon subscribers. Many of you have asked about the update to the historical sheet that I share. I am working on that. I'm actually trying to make it a little bit more integrated so we don't have to live in a spreadsheet anymore, knock on wood, because my web development skills are subpar. So uh, hopefully we'll get that up sometime shortly with a bunch of new updates, including historical playmaking value, historical scoring value for all players back to 1955, all sorts of other things that I'm working on for you as well there. Oh, one more thing. While we're here, if you've read Thinking Basketball, the book, and you have a moment, go on over to Amazon and see if you can give it a review and a rating there. It helps the algorithm, helps the standing in the algorithm and all that stuff. I think it has 16 reviews right now. I'd love to get that up to like 25 or 30 reviews. I know it can take a minute and be a pain in the butt, but really appreciate that if you have the time. Otherwise, uh, as always, I hope you're having a great day, and I will talk to you in the next episode.